and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we'll be talking about 1984 by George Orwell. Father Richie. Hello. Uh, today we're talking about 1984 by George Orwell. We're continuing our project um, of reading science fiction books and this uh, this set we're doing dystopias. Um, so Dad, I think you wanted to address something else before we jump in though, right? Right. So uh, a friend of ours pointed us to a, another podcast which is called Classical Things You Should Know, who, which covered Brave New World. So if you want to hear another point of view of Brave New World, you could listen to them. They actually mentioned us in the podcast, and one thing that they said that they didn't understand what history in reverse was. So here's a short explanation for those people who don't like to read short notes. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about science fiction. History is when you talk about stuff that happened in the past. Science fiction is about stuff that's going to happen in the future. So it's history in reverse. Get it? Pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we explained it the first like one or two podcasts, and then, right. uh, then we. And we assumed you all listened to the first few, so that's we stopped. Right. <laughs> but that's the explanation, yes. So um, the other thing, if you listen to our Brave New World podcast, there's one thing that the guys in the classical stuff you should know noticed, which I don't think we observed. Mm -hmm. One of the things they said is that, in, I mean, we realized this, that in Brave New World, sexual, sexuality was divorced from childbearing completely. Yes. Now, mind you, when uh, Huxley wrote that, that was 1930s, that was no such thing. But when the pill was invented, essentially what we live today in a brave new world where sexuality is divorced from childbearing. Oh, yeah. And that, that was um, a point that they made. So it's in some ways today is, is that part of brave new world came true. Oh, interesting. No, I hadn't thought about that. Well, that's a really good point. Anyway, so much for Huxley. Let's move on to George yes, Orwell. George Orwell. Okay, you want to tell us a little bit about the... The context, so 1984, the book was not written in 1984. No. Okay. Well, 1984 was written in, in 1948. This was historically, was right after World War II, and there was a rather large rise of communism in, in Europe and in Asia, so the Soviet Union, a whole bunch of satellite countries, mm -hmm. including the country where I grew up in, so we'll, in Poland, which we'll talk about mm -hmm. what it was like then. This book was, in part, kind of the reaction to the rise of communism. George Orwell didn't like communism, didn't think it was any good. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there were people more in like in the 20s and the 30s who thought that communism might be a better way to structure society than capitalism. And I think after the war with uh, you know, fall of fascism and, and, and stuff, uh, a lot of people were disappointed, kind of, not disappointed, just disillusioned, I guess, about mm -hmm. possibility of communism. And, Soviet Union become quite quite uh, terrible as a place to to, to live, mm -hmm. and so Orwell was, I I think was writing kind of to explore the idea you know to to the max basically what would happen mm -hmm. right one of the things um, you heard about uh, when you were growing up in communist country that there was a dictatorship of the People's Party so there was one party that was the the, mm -hmm. the communist party was the dictatorship 
and there were no other parties. And this is very similar to, to August 1984 setup. Yeah, and even that kind of language, the dictatorship of the People's Party is kind of very right. like propaganda kind yes. of stuff. Yes, yes. And the other thing I think that, that kind of shows what the world looks like in 1984, the book, it reminds me of some stuff I've read about what the world was like, in, let's say, in London during the war, because mm -hmm. London was being bombed regularly but mm. people still went about their own lives just every now and then bombs would fall and kill some people yeah and they would clean up and continue mm -hmm. you know people were willing to put up with lots of uh, shortages and rationing and stuff because there was the war on and right. there was the war to be won mm -hmm. so well and i've read some stuff about american history too about when um the united states you know finally joined world war ii and everything towards the end and there was all kinds of things like having you know you had a victory garden where you grew your own vegetables and right. you had to you like ration and save right. and it, like there was like this sort of big push you know support for the war support right. the country for the war effort so i think the, you know what he's describing here is largely based on what he was seeing in real life right um and the ways people were reacting also we think that in some ways this was Orwell, orwell's response to brave new world because orwell mm -hmm. was huxley's student as we mentioned it before mm -hmm. and he did not think very highly of brave new world <laughs> i guess in terms of ideas i don't know what he thought about the writing and he thought it was just way too nice, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely some lines in the book that seem to address that specifically. And there's a lot of themes and patterns that are either exactly the same or are polar opposites between the two. And yet both are somehow dystopia books. Right. So that, mm. that's kind of one of the things we're going to talk mm. about. So first we're going to go through and do an overview of the plot broadly. And right. Spoiler alert. But I mean, I assume you've right. read the book. Spo spoiler alert. Winston dies. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, we'll get there. I used to think that. <laughs> <laughs> so the book starts in Oceana, which is a country that seemed, he seems to be in London. Yeah. Yeah. It may or may not actually be 1984. We don't ever get any confirmation of what year it really is. Right. Uh, and that's part of, you know, part of the whole thing is that our main character, Winston Smith, doesn't really know anything for sure. It's very difficult to know anything for sure except for relying on your own memory. And even then, you know, his... Okay. his and why is that? That's because of the party. And because <laughs> of Big Brother. You want to explain what the party is? Uh, well, <laughs> so the world seems to be ruled by this, the party, and then the elites are members of the party. The and inner party. Yeah, there's several yeah. layers of the party. So the inner party is like the super-duper elites, and there's just like regular party members like Winston. Mm -hmm. And the kind of work they do is to basically keep the party in power. Besides them, there's a population that they refer to as proles, which is like the proletariat. Right. You know, they kind of live their own lives. And, and they make up the vast majority of the population. That's what it sounds they're like, They're like 80% yeah. or something. Right. There's like a, the most but most they have no power. They're just basically, I don't want to say slaves, because they, they kind of live their own lives, but they're not concerned. They're not educated. They, mm -hmm. they like to go to pubs and drink, you know. And gamble. A and lot gamble, of gambling. right. Yeah. So Winston Smith works, he's a party member, and he works at one of the ministries. He works at the Ministry of Truth, which is involved in disseminating lies. <laughs> well, so, no, Ministry of Truth, it's not disseminating lies. It just corrects the records to match the, the current truth, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the points that he makes that why it's hard to remember things, it's because if you remember something, Today, you can, you know, look up what the papers were saying, you know, 10 years ago and say, okay, I remember 10 years ago this happened, look at this evidence. Mm -hmm. And in Brave New World, in the 1984 world, 
uh, Winston's job is to go and correct the records. Right. Exactly. So for like one of the things we see is he gets a, uh, an assignment at work where they say you know this person has is now an unperson. The person no longer exists. So he has to go back and remove that person's existence from various records to make sure that if anybody were to look for the person, it's like the, the person was vaporized. That's how Winston. That's what, how they refer to it. Refers to but it. But the more un other interesting thing is you know party being perfect and and doing everything best. For example, they they have chocolate rations, right? Yeah. So the chocolate rations are like, you know, five grams a week or something. Mm -hmm. And then they have to reduce them because of reality, mm. actual reality, and to two, two grams a week or something. Mm. And Winston then goes and changes all the statements that were made in papers about how much chocolate people get. And they realize they were always getting two grams a week and they're very happy because it was increased from one gram a week. Right, exactly. So it's all part of that the propaganda machine that's going on and Winston is an active participant in it as you know he, he's making these changes and he's aware he's making these changes. Right, it's, it's, I guess it's thought control, right? Right, exactly. So that's the one, one of the ministries, is the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Peace, right. uh, which is concerned with war, right. uh, which we don't really get to see much inside of right. the Ministry of Peace. It's Ministry of Plenty. Yeah, Mini Plenty. Which is the one that deals with economy and, and, and reduces the rations of things. Right. Uh, and then Ministry of Love. The Ministry of Love, which we get to at, towards the very end. Ministry of Love is a giant building with no windows. And it's scared. Winston's afraid of it from the very beginning. The very first time he describes it, he describes how frightening it is. Right. And it, you can't even get near the Ministry of Love. There's like guards and stuff, even a few blocks out. So that's kind of where we're at. And we. So there's also this. In the beginning, you find out that basically the life of Winston is kind of drab. He, he lives in this like shitty apartment, pretty, yeah, pretty bad apartment yeah. and, and kind of rundown buildings. Yeah. And uh, every apartment has a telescreen, mm -hmm. which observes you and tells you what to do. Like, you know, wakes you up, makes you do exercise in the morning. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and keeps tabs on you. Right. Just like the FBI guys that watch us through our phones now. <laughs> right, just like uh, Alexa. Um, for for my FBI guy, I think capitalism is great. I don't think communism is good. I'm going to say that for the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the telescreen like literally watches them all the time, and there there are these big posters around, right? That give that tell them. Right. So one of the things is Big Brother, right? So there is a figure of of this man, Big Brother, and mm -hmm. posters of him everywhere. Mm -hmm. And Big Brother is like assumed to be the head of the government, the old party, mm -hmm. but you never actually see him. Right, and all the posters say Big Brother is watching you, which is the, you know, one, probably one of the most famous lines right. from 1984. And he, but literally the party is watching you on the telescreens, um, or sometimes through microphones. If there are A microphone, so around. like, you know, for example, if you dream about unapproved thoughts, you can be vaporized. Right, if you're speak, talking in your sleep or anything like that, absolutely. So the story begins, we pick up with Winston when he's done something that is not going to be approved of. He's bought a diary and he's going to write in it. Right, it was a, it's a blank notebook. Right. Right, so what happens is, I think he talked to, he wandered around some of the pro areas. Right. Which are not quite as... as uh, they're, they're not as such surveillance. Right, yeah, and like and party members all wear the same uniform, they all wear blue overalls. Right. I don't know what that imagery means. Does that mean something? Is that supposed to be significant? I'm sure it is. Look at the, the like the 
workers are great posters that are oh know, yeah Russian art you know they always wear like these like a denim bluish kind yeah. of you know muscular workmen building mm -hmm. the the communism yeah thing you know? oh i see okay so that, yeah that, so that's they, what's probably they wear these very significant blue overalls so it's obvious you can easy to pick pick the party members out so when a party member goes to a parole area they, they stand out um so he, so he had gone wandering around and had come across this like antique shop kind of right. thing bought this diary and this is part of sort of the first action Winston takes after many years of beginning to question what's going on around him, what how life used to be, whether life used to be better or not. And he can't remember. Right. He's he trying has, to remember but but he has some memories of his childhood and stuff, but he's kind of he's sort of at, at an interesting generation in the society because he was a child when the revolution happened. Right. And he was young enough that he has vague memories of it, but not specific memories like of it. Like, he has some memories of his mother. And his sister. And, and his sister, like right. And he remembers, like, when they went, the day they went missing and stuff right. like that. But he doesn't really remember many details about what life was actually like before right. the the revolution. So, he buys his diary. And the, the our, I think our first chapter with him is he takes it home and starts writing Right, it. right. So, he finds, he thinks there's a spot in his apartment where they... Telescreen cannot see him. Yeah. And he, so he opens the diary and saw some, writes some stuff in it, including, mm -hmm. what did you say about Big Brother? The down with Big Brother. Down with Big Brother, yeah. He, and he's, he writes in this like fury where he's just like, he, he needs to get these thoughts out. He, right. he can't contain them anymore. Right. And he also, he writes um, every couple of chapters different things in this diary. Um, the, I don't know if you noticed the one thing that he does. He wants to make sure that, that nobody touches you, his diary, so he wants to know. So he, when he puts it in his desk, he puts like a little piece of, of dust, of dust yeah. on it in a spot, just so that if somebody moves it, he expects that that will be moved. Right, he would know if the dust was moved. He's, he's trying. But that said, from the very first chapter, um, the, there's a lot of foreshadowing in the story. It's one of the big structural things about it from the very beginning. The story tells us where it's going because Winston's like, "Well, I'm gonna be killed. They're gonna they're gonna shoot me. They're gonna vaporize me." And he even in that first chapter, he thinks to himself, "They're gonna they they'll shoot me in the back of the neck eventually." And then he goes downstairs to help his neighbor. His neighbor needs help fixing something, and yeah, the little the sink, boy yeah. little boy has a, a, a slingshot gun. or something. Oh, like that. Gun, right, yeah. right. And hits him with it in the back of the neck, and it's a parallel. The, the interesting thing, and we were talking about this a little before the podcast, the interesting thing about 1984 is there's some, like, it's a great book to teach to, like, high schoolers because there's some very straightforward literary things that are very simple to understand, like, that's a parallel, that's foreshadowing, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's some, like, crazy, insane themes here that I've only realized on this read-through <laughs> <laughs> that are really high level that I love. So, like, that, that's, like, a kind of easy parallel that happens. So there's part when he describes like his day at work where he sits at his desk. Mm -hmm. They had these pneumatic tubes. See, this is kind of funny because we said you know in today's world this would be all done by computers. They had no computers there. Yeah. But this is pneumatic pneumatic right. tubes where the articles come in and he has to rewrite them. But they have speak type, so they have some. Yeah, that was yeah. He has a thing like he can talk into it to to re to redo the article. It's interesting. So basically, article comes and tells him you know what what has to be changed in it. So he rewrites it, mm -hmm. and the new one is submitted, and the old one is thrown into the memory. Is this the memory, the memory hole? Memory hole. Yeah. Where it basically gets burned. 
and when something big happens they have to basically go back and change lots of records and things yeah. like that so this there's he's constantly doing work. so he's doing that that kind of work and at his office there's a girl that he mm -hmm. kind of sort of seems to be interested in but they don't talk or anything um, well he thinks she's a member of the thought police oh so what is the thought police that's a great question <laughs> <laughs> the thought police is one of the staples of this universe is that they are the police that they are the people that watch to see if your your thoughts and your way of thinking are turning out to be contrary to party doctrine and they're super scary because they're the ones that watch you through a telescreen but also watch you in other ways and they're like spies you never know yeah. who's a member of the thought yeah. police and this girl he sees the dark-haired girl is so like he he interprets her as being like so pure and so like strongly for the party and so orthodox that like she's got to be a member of the thought police and she's like the worst kind of person and Winston expresses particularly almost almost anger but like concern with women in the party and he he says you know all women are always the worst they're the ones who are like really into this whole party thing right and uh you know she's one of the worst ones he had kind of a bad experience with his wife right? yeah no he didn't have a good experience with his wife um at work also they have i guess every day they have this thing called the two minutes of hate yeah so which basically what it is is they go I'm not sure it was like a separate room they went to in front of a big screen mm -hmm. where they were basically indoctrination for two minutes and the person that was hated was this uh, I guess counter-revolutionary named Emmanuel Goldstein mm -hmm. you know it's not clear whether he's a real person or an imaginary person mm -hmm. but basically they would have like a mini rally they would rile everybody up and everybody would scream how they hated him right right and they show his picture and his, his voice would become the bleeding of a goat or, or a sheep or right, something right. And his face would become a sheep face it was like all you know kind of classic straightforward kind of propaganda stuff happening and you know everyone would be shouting and Winston would join in of course I mean you had to at least pretend that you were yeah. into it yeah so and one of those rallies Two minutes of fate something happens between him and this guy o'brien yes Wanna explain that so o'brien's another guy he's a member doesn't know he's a member of the inner party at that point i think he's a high level yeah, he's like a higher level person and winston um has significant eye contact with o'brien during this meeting it's almost like a romance that like we see each other like romance yeah and they they have this eye contact and and O'Brien does this thing where he like puts his takes his glasses off or like resettles his glasses on his face and whatever and it's like very Winston thinks it's like just the bee's knees that he does this with his glasses and Winston thinks that O'Brien seems like someone he can talk to and that someone he can trust he yeah can there's trust. a it's not clear whether it's myth or, or, or it's true mm -hmm. about this underground existing right. which called, called the Brotherhood right and Winston has been like hearing things about it here and there. I'm not sure where, and he suspects that maybe O'Brien is a person, right? Who's in the who knows about it, right? And he he feels like compelled to talk to O'Brien and stuff. But obviously they don't they don't say anything. But they had the significant eye contact, and Winston thinks about it. And Winston, um, I think before that significant eye contact, had a dream about O'Brien, where the dream where. Winston's walking down the street or something like that and he passes O'Brien and O'Brien says we'll meet in the place where there is no darkness Right, that's right And it's this dream and then the significant eye contact and Winston starts to think You know, this is There's something yeah. I'm making contact with the Brotherhood basically right. So I guess the next action that happens 
And this takes place over a long period of time, like days and days pass right. in between right. things. Because they have to, because they have to be very careful not to do too many suspicious things all at once. Right. He is walking in the hallway at work, and the dark-haired girl is walking towards him. Right. They're going to pass each other, and her arm is being sling, uh, some some reason, injured. Yeah. And she trips and falls. And he goes to help her up. He helps her up, and she says thank you, and she keeps going, and he keeps going. But in that interaction, she passes him a little piece of paper. Right. And he takes a piece of paper back to his office, and he... I think he has to go like to the bathroom or something, because he can't... No, he won't go read it in the bathroom, because he's like, there's so many telescreens in there. Right. Apparently, they're really, really watching you in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> but he goes, he takes it back to his desk, and he hides it under the other papers, and works for a while. Right. And then manages to, like, sneak a glimpse at it. And do you remember what the note says? Yes, the note says, I love you. And he says, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> It's different. <laughs> yeah. So he he's not sure if it's a trap. You know, she's a member of the thought police and this is a trick. He ends up throwing the note into the memory too. Right. Gets rid of it. And, but then he wants to talk to her. So it's like, it takes a long time. He tries, tries to like sit next to her in the cafeteria. Right. And then uh, all and these guys interrupt him. There's all these side characters that he works with that he doesn't like. Right. Par Parsons is the guy that seems really into the party, and then there's, there's one who's like into Newspeak. Sim is into a news, uh, Newspeak. Um, we, we gotta talk about Newspeak at some point. But so you know, he it takes him a while, but he manages to sit at the table with Julia or with the dark hair girl. Right. At some point. Right. And how did they finally uh, arrange to meet? They at the table. At the table, she gives him instructions to meet her at a rally. Right. So they can walk together. Right. So they meet at the rally by like a, the base of a statue or something. And then she gives him instructions to meet her in some other place later on. Right. Outside the city. Right. And very complicated, like take a train and go left and go right, 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 go right. Yeah. track that has a bar over it and goes through the bushes, like all the kind of things. So Winston goes. And then what happens when Winston goes? Well, they meet in this clearing out in the woods mm -hmm. where they think nobody watches them. And the thing that you think would happen, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out she's kind of a radical herself. Mm -hmm. right? And um, they basically kind of start carrying on a love affair. Mm -hmm. And her name is Julia. Her name is Julia. Have you ever find out her last name? No, I don't think so. No, that's either. Julia's 27, Something right? Like Winston's 39, and Julia's been doing this kind of like sneaky cat and mouse game with the party since she was 16. She said her right. first love affairs when she was 16. Uh, she had several boyfriends throughout right. that time. Right, but she's not into necessarily overthrowing a party or philosophy or anything. She just kind mm -hmm. of wants to have kind of fun and... And, and survive. She's right. concerned with survival. So Winston's opinions on whether or not he wants to live kind of uh, go up and down throughout mm -hmm. the story. But he's sort of always very pragmatic with and consistent on like knowing that eventually the party will get him. Right. And Julia is kind of like, nah, like I've, I've been doing this a long out. time. We're good. And yeah, she won't really philosophize with him so much. She's she's interested in in enjoying herself and being alive, right. and he's interested in sort of um, overthrowing the party. Well, or something. Yeah, or so yeah, uh, finding the brotherhood or whatever. So one thing about Winston, Winston was married before. Right. And 
his wife just kind of left him and I think his wife was a good party member yeah and Catherine, yeah. they got married so that they could reproduce mm -hmm. and for some reason they could not have children it, it's not they don't say whose fault it was or anything mm -hmm. it's just but basically it said Catherine you know for her sex was just for a mechanical thing mm -hmm. to fulfill party obligations yeah she, she would say we have to do our duty to the party right <laughs> and then of course when they couldn't for whatever reason she left him and, and so that was that was the experience that Winston had with with women up until then. Well, he also had sex with a prostitute at one time. Right. Yeah. Probably more than once. But yeah. yeah. He writes right. about that in his diary. Yeah. So his his relationship to women is very complicated, and that oh, that also brings in his, the relationship to his mother. So throughout right. this, he's having memories of his mom and his sister, who was having a baby at the time. Right. Um, he doesn't know what happened to them. They just disappeared. There was a day they were home. He left. He came back. They were gone. Right. And he basically remembers as a child always being hungry and right. always being very difficult. And like he can reflect on the fact very that selfish. he was very yeah, selfish. Like, you know, he, yeah, and he, he always demanded more food and things like that. It so kind of almost implies that, that his sister did not survive because mm -hmm. he survived. Because he. Well, he thinks both his mother and sister had to die for him. He has a dream mm -hmm. um, towards right. the beginning, remember, within the where he, he described it sort of like he was looking down at them like through water or something, I think. Or they were in like a deep hole and right, they're sinking right. further and further right, away from right. him. And he, he does have this sense that they, they did not survive so that he could survive. And I wonder if that's true in that the, the mother was too old to be indoctrinated into the party and the sister was just kind of like a small weak appendage to her that was just kind of... Right. dragged under and that so the party eliminated her and the sister but Winston was of the right age that he could become a party member right. even you know right. uh, without without too much hassle right. on the part of the party because of the, the age group he fell into uh, but we're not sure that's that's all speculation so the the other thing about his um, affair with Julia is that the place where he found the diary right he goes mm -hmm. back to that place and he talks to the owner mm -hmm. like an old guy running this shop and he tells him the old guy tells him oh, I, I live here with my wife and there's a room upstairs so you can come and use it if you want to be not observed mm -hmm. right and the, and they wind up um, he and Julia go there for to conduct the affair so rather than right. going to different places every time they go to this, this one place and is that the time when he buys this coral and glass he, he buys the coral and glass first um, and then later ends up renting the room, but they're pretty close in time to each other. So right. he and Julia meet one time in the forest, then there's like a church somewhere right, that they meet. Right. And then eventually they're like, you know, let's just rent this room. And right. So while all this is going on, you, right, the, there's this war happening in the background because mm -hmm. we've always been at work with Eurasia. And oh, it was East Asia. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and basically he describes like the city, which... To me, it sounds like like what he probably experienced as as a Londoner in World War Two, mm -hmm. where occasionally like rockets fall in right. and people get killed, and the pros come out, clean stuff up, and, right. and life goes on. There's a great scene where one of the rockets falls, or whatever, and a um, a hand, a human hand, is in front of him, right. and it's kind of like white with dust. And he kicks it off to the side, and it's kind of like keeps living. It's it's a very the rocket scenes are very interesting, and the, yeah. and the ways that they're described. But yeah, so there is this war going on, and they're also 
the story sort of centered around timeline wise the hate week that's coming up. Right. So Hate Week is just, I guess, like a big like parade a celebration, time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of like hatred. And so for a while, he and Julia are both working uh, really intensely in preparation for Hate Week. And then. So then O'Brien talks to him. Yes, before Hate Week. Yes. Right. So O'Brien stops him. I'm not sure exactly where. In the hallway somewhere. Where? In the hallway says. Uh, he says, I know you work on these, you know, revising all these articles and there's going to be a new dictionary of Newspeak coming out. I have an early edition. Why don't you stop by my house and I'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. And O'Brien writes out his address and goes to him. Right. And Winston takes it. That's very significant. Right? Yeah. So. Winston's like, this must be like it, because otherwise it would be impossible to know where O'Brien lives, right? Right. So Winston's like, this must be, you know, his, this is a sign to me, clearly, whatever. He talks to Julie about it. She's like, cool. They end up going. Right, they go meet it's O'Brien. It's a while later they end up going to right. O'Brien's house together. And what happens when they go? So when they get to O'Brien's house, there's a servant that lets them in. And O'Brien says, oh, hi, nice to see you. And then he turns off the telescreen. Mm-hmm. And said, oh, my God, you can turn these off. Yeah. <laughs> and O'Brien's like, yes, Yes, but we can. Oh, we can, but only for like 30 minutes at a time. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, we'll be too suspicious. And then he tells them that he is the member of the Brotherhood and the Underground. Well, first, before he says, before O'Brien says anything, Winston takes like a leap of faith and is like, mm. so I want to destroy the party and join the Brotherhood and I'm against Big Brother and all. Like He like makes this big statement right. about all this stuff. And that's when another Brian reveals, in fact, he is a member of the Brotherhood right. and all this, all these things. And he tells him, I think, one of the things, you have to be prepared. You know, the Brotherhood is, is a very loose organization. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to meet anybody else from it. And you may have to renounce everything. And, and are you ready to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And he says, yes, 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 of course. Yeah, and they give him all these horrible options of, like, are you ready to kill children and all these right, things. Yeah. Right. Um, but the, what's the one thing Winston and Julia won't won't agree to? Giving up each other. Right. right. They won't be separated. Then O'Brien tells him, "Okay, we'll uh, give you a book. You should read." Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's Emmanuel Goldstein's book. Right. And it's awesome. And we got it. They had to do all kinds of sneaky spy stuff to get it to them. And it's like a briefcase switch yeah, off yeah, and yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So eventually they get the book. So the the. Just an aside about Emmanuel Goldstein. So um, there's a large hacker organization, computer hackers and security guys, who run this conference. It's been done, done for like 20 years or so, called Hope, and a published magazine called 2600. And the guy, one of the guys who's like in charge of this this whole thing, his name is Emmanuel Goldstein. <laughs> and I used to think that that was a real name, but I realized it's just a pseudonym. So yeah. <laughs> That's cute. I like that. So, you know. Um, so they get a hold of this book, and then um, George Orwell falls into one of these tropes that I can't believe how common it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm blown away by by this. But basically, they there's a chapter. This is like two chapters almost. That yeah, in like been. the middle of the story. So, so yeah. I listened to the audio this time, and I know you, you read, read the text read again. The text, yeah. um, and I've read the text before. 
and this chapter is like an hour and 20 minutes long or something like that and there's some other stuff happening in it but primarily it's Winston and Julia in their little apartment um, and Winston reading he reads like part of the book himself and he, then Julia reads, comes in right so there's the, the, the three principles of uh, the party mm -hmm. right which is war is peace freedom is slavery ignorance is strength right. and Goldstein explains Yes, Goldstein explains in excruciating detail how the party works. So what it, what it is, is almost an entire hour of George Orwell explaining how cool his world is and how interesting and neat his government is that he designed through the words of Goldstein, through Winston reading it. This ha this happened also in Solaris. Well, Solaris, in a Brave New World, we had, we had the, whole the tour of the factory. The whole beginning of Brave New World, yeah, it's like... <laughs> Exposition, exposition. <laughs> so it's it's and it's very interesting. It's a it's very interesting, but I don't know if it was I don't know if it was. Necessary. It's it's kind of I would I would say it's like borderline philosophy, political science kind of a thing right. where he talks about, you know, if a country is at war all the time, well, the government can demand stuff of its people, saying you know you have to fight to defend your country. Mm. Then you know. You have to only get you know two grams of chocolate a week because we need chocolate for the soldiers on the front. Right, exactly. You know, whatever. And the interest, the interesting thing about it is that it sort of establishes that the point, the difference of this party's control versus previous totalitarian control, is that the way this one functions is meant to be indefinite. It, it eliminates any a potential of revolution, and what we come to learn from the rest of the story, because Winston does not get to finish the book, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Uh, what we learn from the rest of the story is that they, they do that by uh, the thought control that right. we, we get to see later. So he reads the book, they fall asleep, and then I, it's kind of unclear. Did they act, did they like oversleep their alarm? Like what happened that they... It's not, it sounds like almost overslept, but I, they were they were observed all the time. Right. So like the, the, the party right. knew exactly, the thought police knew exactly what they were doing all along. Right. They were not secret as they thought. And right. So it almost doesn't matter. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter at all, because the shopkeep turned out to be... Right. So they wake up in the morning, and they, you know, they kind of have this moment where they're, like, looking out the window, waxing lyrical about life, and how, like, then they're like, we are the dead, or whatever, and then there's a voice behind them, a mechanical voice behind them that says, you are the dead. Right. And uh, it turns out there was a telescreen behind a, photo, a frame. Yeah, uh, a, a picture on the yeah. wall, yeah. And uh, the thought police come in. Right, and they get arrested separated and never see each other again. Yep. And um, O'Brien. O'Brien is the thought policeman. Yeah. <laughs> O'Brien comes in, whoops. <laughs> and the, it turned out the shopkeeper was also a yeah, the thought police. Yeah. So, so they were, you know, Winston was doomed from the time. And even to make a point of, of, well, so he's taken to Ministry of Love. Yes. So now we get to see inside the Ministry of Love. And, um, and basically he's tortured there. Yeah, and we see other people inside the Ministry of Love that he knew. Um, Amber Forth, who was the poet, I think, is in the in there at one point. And there's um, Parsons, right? Who's right. Parsons, who seems to be like, you know, perfectly orthodox, gets turned in by his kids. Well, it it, sh it shows you kind of how people react to this kind of arbitrary arrest. Mm -hmm. You know, they said, well, it's a mistake. You know, I didn't do this. Blah blah blah. You have to, you know. And I think, like, when he first gets arrested, he sits in this one room with his telescreen observing him. He's not allowed to move, so he yeah. moves and yells at him. Yeah. And uh, and he's very hungry. There's, like, no no food. 
-hmm. until somebody drops a piece of bread on the floor and he still can get it right right so it's it's pretty awful torture yeah, yeah. so the the pretty much that's like the last third of the book or so is spent with him in the ministry of love there's like regular torture kind of techniques there's a lot more philosophy stuff happening right so i think yeah. one of the interesting things that that is this i guess george Orwell discusses in this part is how can how, how, how far can torture go right so he says you know in the past if you were a rebel against something mm -hmm. you know they burn you at the stake but when you were being burned you still believed the stuff you believed right, right? so and you were made a martyr and that was bad for the government right but what this government wants to do is to basically change your mind right. control your thoughts right mm -hmm. and and they talk about this uh, room 101 mm -hmm. which is like the everybody you know who says okay you have to go to room 101 and they scream any no anything but to yeah. go to room 101 and we sort of find out at the end what, what was there right yeah so for a while winston is very tortured very physically you know he was starved and beaten he's and yeah, stuff. Quite in pain and um then he's kind of recovers a bit they give him food i mean i think o'brien starts being the, the questioner or you know the inquisitor right. or whatever and there's like one point where he shows him look what you look like and mm -hmm. he shows himself he sees himself in the mirror and he's looks like this other man he saw early on who was like a skeletal kind right. of right he's like starving his teeth are gone he's just like just awful awful and this whole time o'brien is always involved in the tortures and the and everything like that and o'brien reveals he's been watching winston for seven years right um you know he's been Okay. Including replacing the piece of dust on the diary when they put right. it back in it. <laughs> yeah, he made sure to replace the dust. I mean, like crazy kind of stuff here. And O'Brien, you know, we get O'Brien says he helped write the book, the Goldstein book. Mm -hmm. So George Orwell can use O'Brien to talk more about philosophy and government. <laughs> right. So then, so there's like the physical torture kind of breaks Winston down. He pretty quickly confesses. He, he knows he, has he confesses to, confess. to everything. So it's like yeah, that, it's that's... like whatever. That's like not a big deal. And then um, you know, like you said, he starts to get treated better. You know, they start to feed him more. Right, but then they take him to this room where there's this dialing for pain. That's before they start to treat him better. Yeah, the pain, um, the just right. the regular pain one. Right. Yeah, the regular pain was pretty early. So they, but they, they start to sort of treat him better. He gains weight. They give him new teeth. He kind of becomes, you know, whatever. And then he realizes that way to win for him would be to, in his last moments of life, before the bullet, because he knows he's going to get shot, right? His last moments of life before the bullet enters his brain, to hate Big, Big Brother. brother. Right. And O'Brien ends up asking him, what are your feelings about Big Brother? And Winston's honest with him and he says, I hate him. And then where do they take Winston? Well, take Winston to room 101. Yeah. And so room 101 turns out to be like a, a probably not a single room, but the concept of a room. Right. That is where they try, they do their best to play out a person's greatest fears. Right, torture based on the greatest fears. Right. All right, Winston's is pretty simple because he's afraid of rats. So they make a good torture device that involves rats being able to get out his face and stuff right. like that. And I guess the point of it is that they want Winston to denounce Julia to... Right, so, so I got 
one what he does as the rats approach his face right about to eat it he says don't do it to me do it to julia so this yeah. is like total betrayal right right and and they stop and uh, basically he's kind of broken down so the the thing that George Orwell, I think, wanted to show is how you can really control someone's mind through, through, through this kind of torture and stuff where basically you can't be a rebel that goes you know, to the stake still thinking what you believed in. Mm-hmm. No, your mind actually is changed to be right. believe what your torturers basically want you to believe. Mm-hmm. And I think Winston gets to that point right. at the very end. Right. So the last torture chapter we get is the rat chapter. Right. And then... He's out and about. He's and then he's Well, because now he's been, his mind has been changed and he's done. Right, so he's hanging out at this cafe that um, he had mentioned earlier in the story that sort of denounced criminals go to. Right. And he's having... Actually, he meets with Julia once. Oh, yeah, they run into each other. And they both can tell each other that they, you know, each one denounced the other, so it's like there's nothing left between them anymore. And it's from what she says, it's clear that, that they did a similar thing to her in terms right. of the fears, because she's like, sometimes there's something so awful that you want it to happen to anyone else, like even someone right. you really care about. Right. Or what. Yeah. right. We get it, we know. So he goes to this cafe and he's waiting to hear news of the war and he's thinking about the war efforts and things like that. Um, and, he, and he loves Big Brother. He loves Big Brother. And the question, I mean, we can, I guess, talk about this now because we're pretty much at the end of the facts. Does, is he, is he actually being shot in that moment? Right. So when I was, when the first time I read the book. So the, the way the text describes it is that the text describes him like knowing the bullets coming and right. then feeling it come into his brain. And the last, and the last line is that he loves Big Brother. So that's right. what the text, that's what the text says. Right. So what, like, what do you, do you think the bullet is real? Well, first time I read it, mm-hmm. I thought that was that's what was happening at the very end, that he was walking down the hall and, and they were shooting him mm-hmm. and he was dying. This time when I read it through, it didn't seem that way to me. It seemed like he was just thinking about it, but like you said, it, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Because right. he basically, Big Brother won, and whether he's alive or dead, it doesn't really matter anymore. His, mm-hmm. his, his mind has been changed. His thoughts are controlled by, by the party. Right. And, you know, they can get him to think exactly what they want him to think and done. Right, exactly. And, I, and, and it's, you know, there is no more Winston, essentially. Right. So, I, th- I mean, I think that it's more interesting as a literary device if the bullet's a metaphor. If it's not literally a bullet, like, he's not literally having these thoughts that the bullet is entering his skull, right? Partially because I don't, it's not really possible to have thoughts as a bullet is entering your skull. It's happening too fast. But, Probably. but I think it's, it's more interesting as a metaphor that... That's it's as if the bullet has entered his skull. Right. That doesn't need to be an actual bullet, right. because, like you said, he's controlled by the party. He's Winston Smith is gone, right. as we know it. So, so that's the plot. That was our quick overview. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it was quick. Well, so we we had a couple of things. So we made a list of stuff okay, to so go, go through. Okay, so go ahead. Um, so let's talk first about dystopia, because that's kind of like our whole shtick here. Right. Um, so I think this is like the classic, classic dystopia, right? right? Yeah. Where the individual is completely controlled by the government, and mm-hmm. and in in the case of 1984, it's it's as completely as you can. Like you know, you always think that your your thoughts in your head are your own, right? Right. Nobody can say what you're thinking. You know, if you just keep quiet, mm-hmm. they won't know. Right, and the government's controlling reality too, right? So right. they're able to control the past and everything like that. And I think the reason this is a dystopia as opposed to a utopia 
I think those descriptors could also apply to a utopia. But the reason it's a, a dystopia is because it doesn't seem like anyone's really happy. Right. Right? It doesn't seem like any... None of the characters we interact with really seem, like, content. I think I was, I was skimming through the book again, and there was one section there when they talk about power. Mm -hmm. And they said, if you have power over other people, the only way you know that it's real power if you can make them hurt. Mm -hmm. Because if if you ask them to do something nice and they do it, it says, well, maybe they just wanted to do it. Yeah. Right. But if they you ask them to do something that's going to hurt them and they still do it, mm -hmm. then you mean you have power. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty... It's a pretty classic dystopia. I think it's almost also like a perfect dystopia. You and I were talking a bit about this before. I'm not convinced this kind of government could actually exist because of how perfect that the upper echelon must be acting. Like it's so, it requires so much precision right. to make this kind of control happen. And I don't know if people as a collective could do it that well. And there's kind of still the question of like to what end because like you know in, in Brave New World the Alphas get to have all kinds of nice stuff right so there, there's a reason for them to want to keep the Betas and the Gammas and the Epsilons in their place because then they get to have a Well here's nice kind of similar there's levels of party and also the proles right. Right but we don't ever see what like what does the inner party have that. They can turn the tell screens off you know. Maybe privacy. A little bit of privacy. Yeah maybe that's. Um, Something. More chocolate. More chocolate, that's true. <laughs> Real coffee. <laughs> so I think it's a little it's a little hard but that's that which probably comes from the, the point of view structure from from Well from part part of it I think this was kind of uh, there's a lot of the wartime living reflected in it. So mm -hmm. especially in England and more so under the in occupied countries, like during the war, if you were in Poland, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that could happen is that and, and this is true, this is what happened. Germans would close off a street randomly, get everybody who was on the street, arrest them, and send them off to concentration camps. Mm -hmm. Just because. Yeah. Uh, there was a very famous movie made after the war in Poland called Forbidden Songs. Mm -hmm. It's just Polish people being Polish people. There would, you know, people would make money by going around the street singing songs, playing accordions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And very often the lyrics were very let's say, not approving of the occupation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the movie is about, you know, basically about those people singing those songs, but often mm -hmm. they would get arrested, or, you know, you can just get shot for it. Mm -hmm. um, well, there's, I mean, there's always been governments that have totalitarian and dictatorship right. and very strong military presence, but I guess the question is sort of the, the precision that's required in this story to have it be perpetual. Right. Because that's one of the things that's described when Winston's reading the book is that the, the goal is to stop any possible revolution and to keep those people that are in power permanently in mm -hmm. power. But, but then, you know, I start, I start to ask questions like, well, what, for, for what purpose, you know, do, do the inner party members have families? Do they have children that they want to inherit the power structure? Do they just want to keep the power structure for their friends? Right. You know, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions, and right. I think that's kind of probably part of the point of the story is right. that there's an almost, it's, it's almost machine-like in its precision and its control. Right, could could such a such a government be even stable and probably the answer is no. Right. So in that way it's like not only is it sort of like a classic dystopia but it's kind of like a perfect dystopia and how perfectly run it is. Right. You know. Yeah I mean like I was I think we were 
talking before is that there's like a range of dystopias. One end is Brave New World, mm -hmm. the other end is 1984, and yeah. all the others kind of fall on the scale between the two, maybe. I think so. I mean, it's like a good, good working hypothesis to go forward. Yeah, with one, maybe yeah. other stuff we can see if it makes sense. Yeah, because yeah, Brave New World's like oh that dystopia utopia kind of thing, and but 1984 is clearly a dystopia. Right. But like I was. Uh, I was thinking about the size of the Ministry of Love. So the building, the Ministry of Love, where Winston's ultimately tortured and all this mind control is happening, is huge. And unless, like, maybe the Thought Police have, like, really nice offices or something and they have, like, a lot of space, but assuming that it's being used for what's going on with Winston for all the people, think about how many... Like, there must be so many people that this is happening to. Which means that, like, Winston always wonders, how, you know, does everyone else really buy into this, or like, what do, do people realize that this is all shenanigans? And he's probably right that a large percentage of people realize it's all shenanigans. Right, but they go and go along because otherwise right. you will get vaporized. Exactly. And I've seen when I was growing up in communist Poland, there was very much a lot of that. You know, mm -hmm. you know communism was not particularly loved by by the Polish people, mm -hmm. so there was lots of grumbling underneath the surface there. But there wasn't a lot you could do, yeah. There was much you could do, no. I just thought about surveillance. Did, did you ever read Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick? I don't think you made me read that one. Okay, there's a movie as well. <laughs> uh, part of the Scanner Darkly is that it's about police that has to surveil people, mm -hmm. right? And because it's such undercover surveillance that when the policemen report on the surveillance, they wear the special suit that they distorts their features or whatever so you can tell who it is mm -hmm. and this one guy in the story has to surveil himself <laughs> <laughs> you know philip dick typical philip k dick that's so. cute <laughs> um did you want to read your quotes yeah so there's a couple of quotes that i that i like in here that kind of relate to um brave new world because last time when we talked about brave new world it turned out that uh, Huxley was actually a teacher of, of Orwell at one right. point, and Orwell did not think much of Brave New World. Mm -hmm. And here's a line from his um, book, and I think, Power is inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Do you begin to see then what kind of world we are creating? It is the exact opposite of the stupid hedonistic utopias that the old reformers imagined. <laughs> right, so, Brave New World was a stupid Hellenistic <laughs> Yeah, but is, isn't the government of Brave New World doing just that by genetically predisposing the people to have different minds? Well, they wanted stability, right? So right. here it's people want power. Well, they want power too. Part of the, the government of Brave New World is had, you know, maintaining that system to maintain yeah. the power. So they're both getting at the same thing, but in different ways. Right. One is definitely much more hedonistic than the other, so... And the other one that's related to Brave World as well, it says here, We have cut the links between child and parent, and between men and men, and between men and woman. No one dares trust a wife or a child or a friend any longer. But in the future, there will be no wives and no friends. Children will be taken from their mothers at birth as one takes egg from a hen. The sex instincts will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality, like the renewal of a ration cord. We shall abolish the orgasm. So again, it's that controlling sexuality is kind of a big thing. Right. So this was this is something interesting between 1984 and A Brave New World because it both are both are divorcing sexuality from procreation. 
but in sort of opposite ways. Right. Where, whereas in 1984, they're trying to totally yeah. abolish the sex instinct in Brave New World, they're sort of actually leaning into it like very strongly, right. but not in a procreation kind of way, right. in that hedonistic kind of way. Right. So that's interesting. Is like that the the one that's sort of like the utopia esque dystopia kind of leans into like human. It, it leans into human experience, like not only just sexuality, but you know, oh, food that tastes good, movies that are nice, you know, fun yeah. experiences, all that kind of stuff. And then this one's leaning into pushing a human to be you know, almost non-human in a lot of ways. Right, right. Which is interesting. I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, making a human into a machine, mm -hmm. right, is kind of the dystopian idea. Yeah, I guess that's, well, that's probably one of the sources of the fear is that you can't, I think a big fear for people is not being able to be happy, not being able to enjoy yourself. Right. So one of the things that's very, that's like dreary about 1984 is that what does Winston, before Julia, what does Winston do for fun? Nothing. Nothing. That's awful. <laughs> and they make him do work. exercise right, in the morning. Exercise. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, I think that's a big thing with dystopia. It's not just like freedom to do, you know, you know, freedom in an abstract, but like literally freedom to be like, I want to watch Netflix or I Big want Brother to, says no. I, I don't want to be watched by my government right now. You know, like for the very like basic freedoms to do stuff. And that, and uh, mostly it's doing stuff you, you want to do. That kind of goes, but the quote you just read kind of goes to um, women in 1984. So there's a few women in 1984 and it's not a huge theme. There's well, there was an interesting one we didn't talk about it. The the pro woman who was singing and, and hanging up laundry. Oh yeah. Right. He so he had a kind of beautiful description of her too. It's he kind of describes that she would have grown up and had like a a, a bloom like a year bloom of like beauty right, or whatever, and right. would have started having children. I would have had like ten or fifteen children, and now all she does is laundry and sing. But she's living a much fuller life than he is right. in a lot of ways. But the. I think Winston's Winston's interactions with women are, you know, very purposeful in that like he, you know, he has these kind of weird memories of his mom. He had this bad experience with his first marriage. He's never really been in love right. or anything like that. And so when he sees women, he doesn't connect with them. He doesn't. He doesn't. For example, you know, O'Brien is the man that he thinks is the person he thinks like, oh, that person's connecting with me. He never. He doesn't see Julia and think I'm connecting with her. Until she reaches out to him, he thinks she's like a spy or whatever. Right. He doesn't have this like delusional connection with a woman. He has a delusional connection with another man, and that I'm sure that that's from his his experiences and everything. And Julia is kind of interesting because the narrative tells us several things from uh, from Winston's point of view about women in society. They're they're all chaste. They don't like having sex. They're all really into the party, right. you know, they're so orthodox, all these things, and then Julia kind of like just punches through all of that right. <laughs> and like ruins that whole thing, which is which is good. And then that's kind of the She's point. She's a hippie, yeah. I think that's kind of the point. Is that yeah, it's like, right. You want to talk about basic high school literature things? No, you can talk about that. I just want to, I want to talk about my impression of this book, first time I read it and this time I read it. Okay. So when I, I read this book years ago and I found it like the most depressing book ever. Mm -hmm. I did and, in high school when I read it too, yeah. And uh, I was thinking about why, and I think at the time 
the fact that you know Winston falls in love and I kind of I like that mm. as as a younger person I'm I guess much more emotionally alive mm. <laughs> or less cynical maybe and and then when that that got destroyed that was to me very depressing mm -hmm. and I thought that Winston actually was killed at the end and uh, this time around wasn't quite as depressing didn't feel as depressing because I guess I'm more cynical <laughs> and uh, and I realized that it's actually ambivalent in the end of the book whether he shot or not but yeah. it, it doesn't really matter anyway mm -hmm. right. yeah I, I would agree I don't think it was as I think maybe part of it is that I knew what was gonna happen I, I do think that there's a big emotional gut punch when Julia and Winston are separated right uh, the first time you read it and I think that's just based a lot on the fact that as a reader you're expecting I mean, it is a dystopia, but you're expecting some, you know, your hero to triumph, right? Right. That's the natural, like, normally that's what happens. And it's not, but the story's told you from the beginning. It's like reading right. it again. Right. It's like telling you, like, he's gonna die, he's gonna die, he's gonna get shot, he's gonna get caught, he can't keep going with this, it'll be a few months, that's it, and then that's what happens. And it's like, oh my god, how could this have happened? <laughs> but the other thing, too, is I think when I, when I first read it, so I first, first read this when I was in, like, middle school. And then I read middle it. Middle school. Yeah, because Chris was reading it for high school. My older brother, my brother's five grades ahead of me, so Chris was reading it for high school, and he loved it. And mm -hmm. so I read it at the same time. And then I had to read it for high school, so I went into that's that's why I fought with my teacher about it. Oh, so you're yeah, telling me about this fight <laughs> with your teacher? I want to hear about this. Well, wait. Well, let me just finish okay. making my point. So my point is that I think that as a younger person, I bought into the romance a lot more, and now oh, as an older person reading it, you can tell that Winston's not really in love with Julia. It's just like he's in love with the fact that they're kind of, you know, doing things Rebels, against the yeah. rules. Yeah. But there's nothing particularly about Julia that he likes. He doesn't even particularly like the way she looks or anything like that. She's just kind of like another person he can actually connect with. Um, so it's not really like the loss of a great love or anything like that. It's just kind of, it's more about the loss of his freedom, which he's kind of never had. The fight with my teacher was just about the coral. So there's a bunch of stuff I was saying before, there's a bunch of stuff in the story that's very like straightforward symbolism mm -hmm. kind of things that are really easy to understand. So like the coral and the glass. Uh, do you want to describe what the coral is? Yeah, so he at one point he, he at the antique store he buys this piece of glass with embedded coral in it. And it's pretty, it's like a rounded piece of glass. I think he carries it with him, I don't think he brings it to his apartment. He carries it with him and then he leaves it in the, the room. The room at, yeah, the, at the antique shop. It's right. the, but the thing about it is it's a it's flat on one side, so it's a, it's a paperweight. It's flat on one side, yeah. it's round and then it's rounded on top, so the piece of coral is like very bright pink and it looks very big in the glass. And when the thought police come and arrest them, they knock it over and it shatters and he sees the coral and the coral is actually quite small. And shocker, it's a metaphor, it's a symbol. It's actually, I think it's more of a metaphor. It's, uh, you know, their world, their little world that they built in the room uh, that looked so big and important and beautiful, shattering, and actually being so small and being so weak. Ta-da! That's it. So, uh, when I was in high school, so I had, again, I had read the story before. Yeah. I didn't quite fight with my teacher exactly, but I, I had read you the disagree. story before. <laughs> I, I disagreed with a lot of my teachers, <laughs> but no, no, this was actually, I read the story before, so I went into it knowing this, this metaphor already, like, mm -hmm. this is, was yeah. there, and I think Chris and I had talked about it or something, like, he had been taught or something, like, I, I knew about it, so we were in, like, small groups, and in my small group, 
I told them about the choral thing and they all thought it was neat. And then each, one person from each small group had to present the thing right. they were doing, whatever. So we, so I talked about the small, the choral, whatever. And then when I came home later that day, I spoke to my best friend who had the same English teacher, but in a later, later class period. And we were talking about 1984 and I was like, do you know about the choral thing? And she's like, yeah. And she just, she repeated back to me verbatim what I had said in class earlier. But she wasn't in my class, and I was like, where did you hear that? And she's like, oh, our teacher, Miss Smith, ta taught it to us today. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, she didn't teach that to us. And she's like, well, isn't that, isn't that where you got it from? I'm like, no, she got it from me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was very annoyed. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But I mean, I got it from Chris, who got it from some other, like, that was... A, a stream of things, but yeah, it was pretty funny. So the coral in the glass is a straightforward one. Fear of rats. Winston's afraid of rats. Rats live in the walls. Rather than everybody would be afraid of rats eating your face, so. Yeah, but I mean, like the the whole idea of like there being there like there is something behind the wall watching you kind of thing. Mm. It's it's a metaphor. Winston Smith's name is always a thing. Anytime you go to read a spark notes, they're all like the name is significant. Like it's supposed to be like. Winston, Winston, Winston Churchill. Churchill was was you know the, the famous politician and, and right. around that time. And know. it's like Winston is like the big powerful name, and Smith is a very common name. So it's a juxtaposition of those things. I see. It's deep and important. Yeah. So this is what I'm saying. It's like some of these things are mm. very basic. Very high school. I want to talk about double think. Okay. This is the thing I think is really cool about this story that I did not realize until this read. What is double think? So double think within the confines of the universe of 1984. Is an I it's a thought control idea that means you can believe earnestly two opposite things at the same time, and it's a crucial bit of thought control that you can, you know, be Winston Smith changing an article to rewrite history, and while you are doing it, simultaneously believe the history you are fabricating. Right. So that's, that's what doublethink is. It's believing two opposite things at once. It, it, it can be used broader, too. They do, throughout the story, sometimes use it in other circumstances. But that's, that's the basic idea. And this is where the novel gets really meta. And I love it. And this is what I think that some of the ideas in the story are very straightforward in high school. And some of the ideas in the story are, have a very high literary merit, which is one of the reasons I think that 1984 has um, been so influential and really surpassed time. Doublethink is at the core of dystopia and at the core of fiction. And this is what I mean by that. So take at the core of fiction, for example. You, you need to, as a reader, employ doublethink to enjoy fiction, ever. Whether it's reading it or watching it or whatever. Because you need to be, you need to believe enough in the characters and the stories that you are, that you're seeing, that you experience real emotion when okay, you're engaging with it simultaneously knowing they're fictional but getting but getting to a point where you're so invested i mean you have people that are so invested in things like harry potter or like game of thrones things like that that it's very emotionally real but you know it's not right so it's it's well it's it's it's, it's a this is an old question in philosophy is is sherlock holmes real um, ask Big Brother, because he was jealous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is Big Brother real, right? So. Right. So, it, exactly, that's the thing. It's like what, it gets into that, like, what is reality? And yeah. doublethink is necessary to enjoy fiction. 
So what about dystopia? How does it relate to dystopia? So the way I'm thinking about it with dystopia is like, we were talking about last time, that dystopia and utopia are kind of very, very, they're like the same, they're like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Right? At what point in time does something become a dystopia? At what point in time does it become a utopia? Which is a little bit more um, apparent with Brave New World. So, I mean, double think. I guess I'm just sort of, I'm using it in a more broad sense with regarding those the, the two because they're the two opposites that are so close. So I'm I'm not quite sure if it, it applies directly, but it's like I'm not trying to think of how to how to explain it exactly. Mm -hmm. I thought about it yesterday. I guess it's less less dystopia and less something like this where like this is a straightforward pretty yeah. clear dystopia and more something like Brave New World, where you simultaneously have you know, everything you can want, right? All of these things, but also the really legitimate question as to whether or not this is a utopia or dystopia. And that you could have in your mind both the satisfaction of the pleasures you are experiencing and the dissatisfaction with the life you are living at the mm. same time. So that's that's how I was thinking about it, applying to... I don't think it applies to 1984 in that way. No, um, um, that's clearly bad yeah. all around. I think double double think can also sort of be a synonym for like meta commentary in that way, um, in like the fiction kind of way. And I, I think that when if you read 1984 with double think in mind throughout, it pops up constantly. It's it's insane how often it pops up and it is applicable to things throughout the story. But I'm wondering if double think can also be applied in real life to real things and be dangerous and, and you know so if you think about the war and stuff right you you know you have to go and kill other people mm -hmm. right and that's like the thing you want to do and you believe in it yet you know there are other people kind of just like you and they will p suffer pain and mm -hmm. stuff when you kill them so we probably employ double thing all the time mm. I mean constantly it's kind of one of those things where it's like there's not because there is no real like single correct way to live, right? There's no way to really reconcile all of those things. Because, you know, you can justify war or not justify war depending on your position. And uh, that's why I think point of view chapter writing is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about Double Think and Meta Commentary in Brave New World is there's a, a section... Brave New World? Or uh, I'm sorry, 1984. I was reading the notes. <laughs> In 1994, there's a section during the the rat torture chapter, which is the second to last chapter, I think, mm -hmm. of the book, where O'Brien is doing the torture. And Winston describes that, Winston asks a question or something, and O'Brien's going to answer, and he describes that O'Brien looks past Winston um, as if he's addressing an audience, and then begins to explain. And I found this to be very bra breaking the fourth wall. So the idea of breaking the fourth wall is when a character in a story address, either directly addresses the audience or acknowledges that it is in a story. So like, you know, when people stare right at the camera on The Office, for example. Right, on the Shakespeare's play, the, the, yeah. the characters talk to the audience. Right, you know, that that's breaking the fourth wall. And so this idea, like, if imagine, like, like picture that, like you have like Winston like sitting in a chair or whatever in the middle of the room, O'Brien's in front of him, Winston asks a question, and O'Brien looks past him and is looking at you. He's looking at the reader and explaining. That's creepy. It's cre it's super creepy. And I think it it plays into this whole double double think meta commentary kind of situation that's happening. And I think it's fantastic. 
and that's why you can read the, this book for a college course too and write about it. And what about Newspeak then? We didn't talk much about that. Yeah, so there weren't that many new science fiction ideas in 1984. I think Doublethink is probably one of the most interesting ones. Or yeah, I think it's the most interesting one. Technologically was the, the telescreens and, and all the... Yeah. Yeah, I always said, you know, these days it would be a lot easier to work at Ministry of Truth mm -hmm. because you just have to revise computer files, not <laughs> exactly <laughs> not actual papers. Yeah, you can just use Photoshop. You don't need to, like, make a whole new set to take a picture. Newspeak was really interesting, and it just it didn't really do anything in the story. It wasn't, like, an active thing. Do you want to explain what Newspeak is? Right, so Newspeak was this new language down the way the party was developing to replace English. And basically what they were trying to do is to reduce the number of words and number of meanings you could express. Mm -hmm. So that to the point where you, you could not have a revolution because there would not be language to talk about revolution. Right. It's just kind of a weird way to think about it, but it's true. It's like language, if you don't have the language to express something, can you, you cannot think about the thing. Right. Well, you and I have talked about this at length in some of the other podcasts that we've done with the, because the previous section of books that we did were all weird aliens right and all the communication stuff i right. think you've linked that ted talk right right because that's very true if you don't have the words to describe it how you know can can you even how do you can't express a complex idea unless you have the words for it yeah how can you know what the flip-flop flip light is if you don't have the word <laughs> for it you know exactly <laughs> <laughs> so the idea for newspeak is that they were just reducing and they would at least to some cool um, ideas like Instead of having the words good and bad, you have good and ungood. Right. That's it. Why well, you don't need the whole? Why you don't need the word bad if you have ungood? If it's really good, it's it's plus good. If it's really really good, it's double plus good. If it's really really bad, double plus ungood. You don't need all these extra words and synonyms. And actually, the the book, the 1984 book, has like a chapter at the end about Newspeak. Was that written by Orwell or? I don't know, it started to play on my Audible, but I didn't listen to the whole thing. Yeah, I didn't read it either. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> I don't want to read about regular English grammar, I'm not going to read about it. <laughs> what about, uh, just to, to start wrapping up, what about 1984's influence on things? This is what I was thinking about. Um, there's an episode of Star Trek Next Generation mm -hmm. where Captain Picard, I think, gets captured by a Cardassian or something and is tortured. And you know how they do the whole thing with Winston with the five fingers, four fingers thing? Yeah. So the so O'Brien holds up four fingers, or yeah, four fingers, yeah. and he, he's trying to convince Winston that he's really holding up five fingers, and right. eventually Winston, you know, capitulates to that. They do almost the exact same thing in that that's, Star Trek uh, episode. That's right, that's right. With the four lights. Yes. He puts up four lights, and then the guy's like, ah, there's five lights. <laughs> and I was listening to it again, and I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. <laughs> The book had tremendous cultural influence. Was it's like seeped into everything. Mm -hmm. you know, the people used double thing and newspeak. Things are Orwellian. Orwellian, yeah, it's, it's become an adjective. And I mean, do, I wonder. I don't know why that is. Why do you think it's? I mean, I think part of its lasting effect is it does have. I think it does have a very high literary value. In it's it's well written. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's like the world's greatest writing in the world, but it's well written, and I think it does have high literary value and how it makes you think about these issues. But, you know, since the you know late 40s, there was the Cold War and, and the commies versus with the West, perhaps this book was kind of used as, as a, an example, saying, see what would happen if communism took over, you mm -hmm. know, one party ruled. So, but I guess it just resonates with people. Mm -hmm. 
I think also the fact that your your hero doesn't win in the end makes it different from a lot of other books because I, th I think a lot of times there's at least some feeling of success at the end of right. of you know your your main character is just like this guy who's getting pushed down. Well, George Orwell like, was also a very influential writer, so he wrote a lot of book essays on politics and mm -hmm. stuff. So we, we he know, wrote we, one we, in the middle of this book. <laughs> right. <laughs> I haven't read any of them, I and mean, we all read Animal Farm. Yeah, right. Animal right. But it's interesting. It's like some of the ideas maybe are reflected by the the current world, where people try to you know, you know, the so-called fake news. Mm -hmm. Where if you if you go looking at various websites that try to troll people, they they mis misrepresent the facts. Or, mm -hmm. you know, the propaganda is is, is a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know. And you can convince people to your point of view by essentially lying in, in some clever ways. Mm -hmm. Actually, propaganda as, as a tool was only invented in the 20th century. Really? Yeah. Oh, I guess like there wasn't really... You need like a rather widespread communication for it to work. Uh, it, from what I've read, it's, it's really kind of really started uh, World War One because, mm -hmm. you know, the various armies needed young men to join and be patriotic and, and, and go fight the other side. So if you look at World War One recruitment posters, there's the you know in England, that's English ones, you see, you know, go fight the Hun and you can see this ugly German carrying off a young woman, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the usual. <laughs> and, you know, of course the, the Nazi Germany the propaganda was kind of brought up to the art. And in fact what they had in, in Germany that was thirties and forties, you know, in, in Nazi Germany is radio became like a thing mm -hmm. and everybody had a radio and there was like a state channel that everybody listened to so it's mm -hmm. very much I, I bet you that's what inspired the telescreens oh yeah to the point where they had like even for people who couldn't own radios they had speakers that publicly set up so they could hear Hitler's speeches mm -hmm. I wonder Nick, if this story would happen nowadays like how this would take like the cell phone into account, you know? Maybe we should rewrite it as 2084. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's it. Dear listeners, someone out there, rewrite 1984 as 2084. <laughs> Make it work. <laughs> um, so what do we have coming up? So next one, we're going to do another limb. Oh boy! Um, we are very excited. <laughs> it's called Return from the Stars. Mm -hmm. It's one of those ambiguous dystopias. I'm and shocked. Lem is ambiguous. And what? I always feel such a sense of con concrete completeness at the end of his stories. <laughs> <laughs> this one actually ends uh, logically with with things being uh, actually coming to an end. But as I recall. And then what do we do? Did we decide what we're doing after that? Because that'll be our third dystopia. I know we talked about Hunger Games. Yes, that's the Hunger Games. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read the Hunger Games before? No, I saw the movie. Okay. So we can we can read the first book and watch the first movie maybe mm -hmm. and uh, talk about it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see where that falls on our, our potential spectrum of Brave New World to right. 1984. Right. right. It's kind of a mixture. Right. So it's in the middle. Perfect. <laughs> from from the movie, it seems closer to the to 1984 than Brave New World. Yes. From from that point of view. Katniss is a pro. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. <laughs> all right, I think that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Okay. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.
Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a sci- uh, oop. Oops. Oops. Thank you. <laughs> it's for the Easter egg. <laughs>